Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. What can women look forward to in later life? Do they expect to live longer and be healthy, wealthy and wise? Or are some of them likely to be more disadvantaged in today's society? I'm talking today to Professor Julie Biles, Director of the Research Centre for Gender, Health and Ageing at the University of Newcastle Faculty of Health and PhD student Meredith Taberner. Thank you both for coming in and talking to me today. Hi, Iris. Thank you. Professor Biles, are women better off generally now than their mothers and grandmothers at the same time in their lives? In a lot of ways, there are. There's been a lot of advances for women over recent generations. They're more educated than their mothers were. They're more likely to have been in the workforce and so have some more independence and some more control over their lives and some more choices in their lives. So in a lot of ways, yes. But of course, this is never universally true for all women at all times. So there's always some people who are better off and some people who are worse off. In other ways, uh, women now are feeling a lot of pressures of modern life and uh, particularly for women who are in their middle ages, they can feel a lot of pressure from both uh, having to raise families but perhaps also having to provide care for other people and provide for their own retirement to make sure they're financially well catered for. When their families are grown and they have more freedom from those responsibility, are they going back into the workforce or do they end up babysitting grandchildren? Uh, The answer is (laughs) both. They... Women, it's actually really interesting because as women get older, they actually increase the amount of work they do. So whilst we might think of age being associated with winding down for work, we've found that as women move through their late 40s and through their 50s towards their 60s, they're actually increasing the amount of work they do rather than reducing it. So women are more likely to move into the paid workforce than move out of it. And if they are working, they increase the amount of hours that they're working. So women are getting busier as it comes to work. But even so, quite a lot of those women are caring for grandchildren and um, some aren't because they don't have grandchildren yet Mm. because the younger generation are having children later and later, so they're Mm. still waiting to become grandparents. But a lot of women are providing some sort of occasional care, but sometimes about 5% of providing care on a daily basis and having a really major role in the lives of grandchildren. But also they might be caring for uh, an older parent or even an older husband if they've married someone who's a lot older than them um, who might need care on a daily basis. So, So they're sort of trying to juggle it all. And I guess there must be times when, as well as being the carer, they're probably trying to do some sort of paid work as well. Uh, yes. which makes it an even bigger strain on their on their spare time. It is it is a big strain and um a lot of women will leave work temporarily to care for someone. So it's a bit like when you have children, you might take some time off work to provide childcare. Uh, at a later stage in your life, you might need to take off work to provide care for a, a parent or relative. And so uh, this is pretty typical of women's working lives, that they are interrupted. They're sort of staggered and interrupted and they have um, larger periods of time when they're out of work which is good for society because we need the input of women uh, to keep our society running in all those ways. But it's it's actually very difficult for the women because it, it means they may not progress as much in their careers because they don't have that continuum. And it also means that they are disadvantaged in terms of superannuation. The term babysitting, perhaps people might sort of conjure up a few negative images about babysitting and, and being forced to do something. Um, there's also the other side where perhaps a lot of baby boomers really enjoy having their children still at yeah. home with them. They might bring a bit of debt with them, perhaps a bit of credit card, mobile phone and hex debt, 
but they still like being involved and having their kids at home. I guess when I was sort of talking about babysitting, it's often when the children have moved away and then they come back. Mm-hmm. But yes, I can see that the having the the ones who are reluctant to leave home, <laughs> um, and they are, they're still quite a, a responsibility for them, aren't they? Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. If they've had their children later in life than, say, their mothers did um, in the fifties and sixties, the the mothers were often having their children in their late teens, early 20s, where now it seems to be more common that they have them mid to late 30s. Does this make a difference to the way that they can get back into the workforce and sort of still stay as part of society? Yes, you're quite right that women are having children later now. In, in a large part of the work we do is with the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health And that study has three generations of women involved in it. So the oldest group were 70 to 75, 10 years ago when we started, or in 1996, nearly 12 years ago now. And the middle-aged group were 45 to 50, and the youngest group were 18 to 22. And we thought we were being really clever and getting those women before they have their children so we could learn something about them. And then they would have their children, and we'd understand more about that whole process of how women negotiate having children working remaining healthy and what what are the influences there now obviously a lot of the women have had children but it for the majority we're still waiting for them to have their first child and they're in their 30s now so uh it's it's later than later than before and it's certainly later than we even predicted 12 years ago because we didn't think we'd we'd be waiting as long for the babies and i guess the grandmothers are waiting waiting for them too um so yes those women are having babies later and it is probably impacting on their um, career development because they're going to have to take time out. But a lot of these women are actually establishing their careers first and then having babies. Mm. And so in a way, they've got that foundation that they can then go back to, whereas we found with the, the older generation of women, the ones who were 45 to 50 when we started, many of them had the children first and then tried to establish themselves in careers. So, And, and that's a little bit harder to do, really. If they were in the older generation of having children, um, their career is, is established, basically. When they take time off to have their families and go back, do they find it harder to pick up the level of working in their position after that break, or do they sort of slit in fairly well? It's not really... Um that they, they don't take great, great big long breaks from work. Mm. So women who are really serious about their careers tend to take short breaks and try to juggle it all. Mm. And that's why the grandparents are becoming so important, helping with the child minding. Mm. And so that's quite important. I think that also a lot of women are waiting until their children are established in school and so forth and then really hitting career hard mm. and trying to make the advances in a very short period of time that they weren't able to make over an extended course of their working lives as men are able to do. And I guess the the grandmother situation comes in at school holidays when, you know, mum's still working um, and keeping her career going, but the children, the smaller children, need to be supervised and that's where the, the older generation come in and, yeah, and step in. they're invaluable. Mm. Mm. How much expectation or how much does the expectations vary from one social standard to another regarding the woman's position in society? I mean, does the working woman um, in the higher grades, does she expect to be able to juggle family, career and everything else that's going on in her life easier than someone who 
is more of a blue collar worker if if you can see the difference i'm getting at mm. does that vary from from standard to standard their expectations we did some work recently uh, some focus group interviews with uh individuals and groups from uh lower income situations mm. versus higher income and what we found was just the degree of choice that came across which uh, translated into a level of freedom with the higher income groups. So there was there were expectations of freedom and, and being able to do A, B or C, but the lower income groups, um, they felt extremely restricted uh, by having to work full-time. They couldn't retire. They had no money. Mm. And there was no choice. There was no freedom. And that became quite obvious. Yeah. So financial security is often the mainstay of whether they stay at work. Um, through as, as long as they can or whether they sort of give it up and, and, and retire, whatever that may mean. These particular groups came across in that way. They were uh, men and women in the different groups that were interviewed and the men in particular, they uh, were working very manually and they were all too aware that bits were wearing out quite quickly mm. and they had to work as fast as they can, as long as they can, while they, they knew their working life had a, a very close, obvious end. Do the women sort of feel that as well to the same extent? Yes. Um, for women, I think there's a few things happening. Some women, ha a lot of women have to work, uh, especially if they're divorced or separated mm. women, they have to work. They don't have the financial security of their husband's work to fall back on. Um, also, they might have to work even if they are married because as a couple, they, they may not have enough finances behind them to see the, them through their older age and also to support the children to the extent that they need supporting even if they're already grown up. And so for a lot of people, it's not so much the top of their list is not so much the finance because they have to do that, but more their health concerns and whether or not their health is going to hold out long enough for them to keep working um, to get themselves financially established. And then I think the other considerations that people are sort of throwing into the mix there are the, life, the lifestyle. So whether or not work is a satisfying experience for them or whether or not they're looking for some lifestyle change. So often the, the fact that they have to keep working financially cuts into their, their freedom of choice? Definitely. We asked women at what age they would expect to retire and on average they said they, well, about... 35% of women, over a third of women, said they had no idea. But of those who could tell us, um, a large proportion of them wanted to retire around about the age of 60, 61 years of age. Mm. And then we asked them when they'd like to retire. And in general, they'd like to retire about two or three years earlier than when they, ex or even four years earlier than that, what they expect. So it's not a matter of what they want, it's a matter of what they think they're going to have to do. And, and that's usually working longer than they'd really like to work. You're listening to Wellbeing and I'm talking to Professor Julie Biles and Meredith Taverner. Professor Biles, if women are living longer generally, is this because we take better care of ourselves and take more care with our health overall? The main reason people are living longer at a population level is because we've been very good at reducing our infant mortality rate. So one of the main reasons our life expectancy wasn't so long in the past is because we had a lot of babies died in childbirth, a lot of children died at young ages. We don't see that as much anymore, which is really great, and we don't want to live with that. Um, at later ages, there have been some gains, smaller gains in life expectancy, and largely they're due to people stopping smoking. So we've had huge advances in reducing the rates of smoking in our society, and we're seeing that in a, a sort of longevity trade-off. And... 
I think that's very important that we maintain that. We don't mm. get slippage in that. Now, there's some concerns at the moment, though, that people, people have stopped smoking, which is great, but as a society, we're also getting fatter, and that's a real problem, and it's, there's actually some concerns that we may go backwards in terms of our enhanced life expectancy. Mm. So the next generation might actually live less have a shorter life expectancy mm. than we might. So I think that's that's cause for concern. So it's almost all the problems that we've solved by removing smoking, we've replaced now with problems of people being overweight, partly due to what we eat and partly due to uh, the level of physical activity. Um, a great deal, though, to do with what we eat. Are we more aware of, of these variances, if you like, in health and diet and and smoking and it's taken us a long time to get used to the idea that smoking really isn't a good idea yeah um do you think it will take us long to bring into the flow of dieting and losing weight more exercise you know are we slow learners we're slow learners but i think we get there and i think smoking is an example of that however um one of the problems is that some of us get there more quickly than others and often it's the people who need the most help in society who are least able to stop smoking, least able to eat fruit and veggies, least able to get a healthy exercise Mm. regime. In some ways, these are sort of luxuries in society. Mm. And sometimes we tend to sort of point the finger and say, well, you're a smoker, you've only got yourself to blame, or, you know, if you just got off off the couch and did some exercise, Mm. you, you know, you wouldn't have these health problems. But it's not as simple as that. And it's sometimes the structure of society that actually creates a situation in which it's hard to do the right thing and easy to do the things that are unhealthy. Mm. So I think we have to look more broadly than at individuals and their own behaviour, but also how we as a society support people to do, uh, to be engaging activities that are healthy. I think that we, Australia's terrific in that we really have turned our uh, attention on obesity, perhaps more than other parts of the world, and started to do something about it. So I think it's it's with the obesity epidemic that the whole mm. world is experiencing, not just us. I, I think that we do have the ability to turn that around, most definitely. But if the, the problem is that the writing on the wall at the moment is that if we don't, we're in trouble. Mm. Over the last five or ten years, I suppose, Women's magazines in particular have taken up the battle about dieting and exercise. Do you think that we may be starting to get to overkill? It's extremes. Uh, You know, I think you can't buy a magazine that doesn't have this person's too fat and this person's too Mm. thin. and, and they're not really really dealing with the real issues that, that, that a healthy weight, there's a, a range for healthy weight and that... Um, and there's a reason for healthy weight. <laughs> that's right. Mm. There's a reason for healthy weight and it's not so you can fit into a pair of skinny jeans. Um, oh. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think, I think we're just too obsessed with the extremes. I think we're also too obsessed with the youth culture. So I think one of the reasons that people want to look extraordinarily thin is because they equate that with looking young youthful Mm -hmm. and of course that's that doesn't work and just because you are getting older and you're getting a wrinkle or two and having experiences you're not a failure and unfortunately that's sometimes what it comes across as if you age you failed Mm -hmm. and and that's completely Mm -hmm. wrong this is the general attitude that you get from women's magazines in particular where at all costs you have to be wrinkle free you've got creams and you've got special diets and, and all of those things so I guess it does come back to this overkill situation that the magazines think that they will sell more 
um, if they use that theme. From a personal point of view, I don't read magazines anymore because I'm fed up with seeing it. It, and I'm sure there must be other women who, who just shun away from it. And as a result, they often sort of shy away from the whole thing, you know, from looking after themselves. Oh, um, that stuff lives in magazines attitude. Mm, yeah. Um, so are you sort of finding that in, in your research that well, people are starting to shy away from it? Uh, I'm not so sure about I think I think people are aware of the importance of staying healthy and I think... A lot of people are aware that some of that responsibility is in their own hands. But as I said before, there's this huge gradient. So if you're well-educated, then you, you do know that, that it's, it's, you've got the power and the control, is, and as Meredith mentioned, the choice. Um, there's some people who don't have those opportunities and can't make those choices. And so that for those people, they may just feel a little bit um, battered about by those mm. magazines that are saying, mm. you know, this is too fat mm. and this is too thin and this is too wrinkly and this isn't a good enough diet, but eat this chocolate and it'll make you happy. It does. <laughs> <laughs> In general, do you think, though, that women look forward to retirement and having, quote, time off, unquote? Oh, there's two answers to that. In general, yes, they do look forward to retirement. But in fact, I'm not sure, so sure that it's time off. Uh, we find that a lot of women have what we call post-retirement careers. So they might give up one job to start another. So there's a lot of transformation in retirement. So it's not just a time of shutting the door on the workplace and going and putting your feet up or taking the caravan mm. around Australia, although there's, there's a lot of that ambition mm. there. But I think that a lot of women are still working in retirement. A lot of women, we've found a lot of women tell us they're retired at one survey. We come back two or three years later and they tell us they're working again because mm. that's what they've decided to do in their retirement is, is take up work. So I think that's one thing that retirement doesn't mean the end of working life. And for a large proportion of people, that's true. It might mean a change in either the amount of time you spend in work or in the nature of work. And a lot of people are looking forward, not so much giving up work, but having more choice and more freedom in the work that they do. So that's important. A lot of people are also making big lifestyle changes in retirement, So, and a lot of that's to do with freedom and choices, where that's possible. And we've talked before about the people who have to work, they don't have the choices. Mm. Um, there's the people who have to retire, they don't have the choices. They might be retiring because they have ill health, and they might be retiring because they have to care for somebody else who has ill health, so they really don't have the choices. We found that about 20 to 25% of people are in that situation where retirement is really, it's not the beginning of a whole new wondrous world. Mm. Um, it's actually, for them, maybe the beginning of the end. And I think we need to understand what's influencing that experience for people and how we can maybe turn that around. What sort of changes do we need to make at a societal level, maybe at a health promotion and personal planning level to help try and turn that around? Do you find that the, the attitude towards retirement varies from urban to rural communities? Um, that's a good question and I'm not entirely sure that we're able to answer that just yet, but it's certainly something we'll be looking at in our data because in the study that we've been undertaking, which has been running since 1996, we have women from all over Australia and we actually were very deliberate about making sure that we had plenty of women from urban and rural, uh, from rural areas, mm. not just from urban areas. So if we took just a straight sample of people across Australia, we'd get 70% in rural 
in urban areas because that's where people live, but we wouldn't have been able to say very much about people in rural areas. And we think their experience is very important. So we actually turned that around and we doubled up on the number from rural areas. So we will be able to look at that. We just haven't quite got to that point yet. I'm talking today to Professor Julie Biles, Director of the Research Centre for Gender, Health and Ageing at the University of Newcastle Faculty of Health and PhD student Meredith Taverner. Professor Biles, where is your research leading to? Will it mean that governments will have a better understanding of the needs of women, both financially and practically, or is there another agenda that goes with that? A large part of our research is involved with the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health, and that's been going since 1996, and it involves around over 40,000 women from all over Australia. The study was funded by the Commonwealth Department of Health and Ageing, so the Commonwealth Government, for the very purpose that they felt they needed information to be able to make intelligent um, decisions about policy and planning and programs. And the study is ongoing, so it informs government, no matter who the government of the day is. And we've had a very, very active uh, relationship with government on this where we undertake the research and we regularly feed back both in person by giving uh, reports and seminars to government employees, but also through a whole number of reports. And these reports are actually available to the public as well on our website, mm. which is www.alswh.org.au. Would you repeat that for yes, me, www.alswh.org.au. So that stands for the Australian Longitudinal Study on Women's Health. When you started to look at these questions um, and how you formulated the study, what were the main things that you looked for? Our study was set up in 1996 and it was really to take a very broad view of women's health. So we we enrolled three different generations of women in the study, so a young group who were aged 18 to 22, just starting out in their adult life, a group who were 45 to 50, and a group who were 70 to 75. And we've been following those women through uh, continuously, and we're still following them. So it's it's been going for 12 years and it's going for longer. So we took a very, very broad view of health. So yes, health's all those medical things, seeing doctors, taking medicines, all of that. It's those health promotion things, what you eat, your exercise, not smoking, moderate alcohol, and those sorts of factors. But we're also looking at the social context in which health happens. So it's in terms of parenting and work and the neighbourhoods in which you live, your relationships with other people your marital relationships, whether they be positive or negative. So a huge social um, concept to health. Mm. And when we're thinking about health, we're thinking not only about physical health and whether or not you have a disease or not, but also about mental health. Is there a bigger variance between mental health and, and physical health? They are, they're related, so a lot of mm. uh, medical conditions will also have some mental health impacts associated with mm. them, and that's becoming, I think, we're appreciating that more and more as we get more information about that. They're not entirely separate, but um, I guess they're also not... Um, it's not a given that just because you have good physical health that you will have good mental health as well. What sort of questions do you ask? Mostly the study is done through a 
pencil and paper surveys. So they're right. questions that people can answer by ticking a box. And then at the end, we give a whole page of space for them to tell us what they want to tell us that we haven't already mm. asked them. And they write lots and lots and lots and tack pages on. And, and that's fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, we actually read them. We actually enter them into a computer. And then we actually analyse those written comments as well so that we can actually make the most use of the information the women give us. But mostly they're questions. We use a standard instrument every single time called the short-form 36-item health-related quality of life profile, and that gives a picture of eight different dimensions of health. Four of them are more or less physical, and four of them are more or less related to mental health, social function, uh, those sorts of aspects of health. Do some women feel that they're becoming isolated as they get older? Some are. But I think a lot of women are very active and engaged. And in the research that Meredith and I have just done, which was looking at more closely at a group of women, some of whom had retired and some of whom were thinking about retirement but hadn't got round to it yet, and some of whom weren't going to retire and were keeping on working. And in that, I think, Meredith, we found that a large majority of people were active and engaged and um, and really quite uh, being energetic about their mm-hmm. lives. And, um, but as youthful. Very youthful, yes. But a small proportion of women, I think, were feeling alone and isolated. Uh, sometimes that might be the way they like it, so we mm. don't necessarily want to assume that's a bad thing. Uh, but some people were feeling quite lost and overwhelmed and, and isolated in their older age and in their retirement. Do some of the women who've left work, as in paid employment, look to go into voluntary organisations for the companionship? Um, I expect that it's part of that. Yes, mm. it's it, some of the focus groups uh, we conducted showed that both men and women were extremely eager and keen to get out and just do things in their community, which did involve interaction and being social and making friends and helping others, um, their own social groups and, and deliberate efforts, such as Meals on Wheels and organisations like that. But we also found, and it was like pulling teeth, trying to get people to describe what we might call volunteering they just saw as part of everyday helping out and they didn't consider it worthy of any discussion but they were driving people to hospital picking them up at 3am delivering frozen meals to, you know mm. to people to defrost over a week and they just shrugged their shoulders and said well that it's no big deal i just do it mm. so it was actually really hard to get a few people to relate to the word volunteering was this mainly from the the older generation of, of women that you were looking at who had this attitude uh, the groups that I'm talking about were people who were preparing for retirement, so mm. they hadn't yet reached the official retirement age, but they were mm. in the, the mid to uh, mature stages of life. Mm. Yeah. So did they see that as being um, simply a change of direction rather than stopping work and looking for something else? They'd sort of already had the idea of, of what we call volunteering already in their heads and they just moved from one part to the other? I know that Julie can describe this much better, but the, the ones I spoke with, already it already filled parts of their life and they perhaps were substituting more of that part because they could and mm. they enjoyed it and they gained great satisfaction from it and perhaps sort of minimising the, the work part, the official work part with the boss that they didn't really like. Mm. But I know there were uh, some work with retirement models that the women's health data showed that Julie does know more about than me. Well, yes, I think that it's... Uh, with, in nature of voluntary, unpaid voluntary work, 
it's not as clear-cut as you might think that there's the people that work and there's the people that do the unpaid voluntary work. In fact, a lot of the people who are working, maybe part-time, but still a lot of the people who are working are actually doing uh, unpaid voluntary work as well. So it's not that you work or you do voluntary work. And so the people who are retiring tend to do a little bit more of that and also so more of the people who are retired do voluntary work but also they do a few more hours but it's not as though working people don't do that as well so it is a bit of a continuum as Meredith said it's something that you increase you're able to increase with retirement where you have a bit more choice and freedom in what you choose to do and I think it also might reflect sort of a dipping the toe into the water perhaps and and testing what you do like to do and what you don't like to do and what you're good at and what you're able to do and contribute and I know that a, a, some of our recent survey work showed that there was a small percentage of women that I think Julie pointed to before that um, felt a bit lost when you talk about retirement and planning and what's coming up. There is just so much choice and it's fairly easily um, to become confused with all that choice. Mm. And so to try out a few things is probably pretty sensible. How much longer will the study, your study go um, you know, is it a never-ending thing that you'll just add to? That, that's what we plan, and it all depends on funding. But my personal ambition is to to be around for long enough that the the um, last person in the oldest cohort turns a hundred. So they're in their eighties now, um, and so I'm hoping that I'll be at least around working with the study for another twenty years. Mm-hmm. But we we would like to be able to add a whole new cohort to it. We think we've got a really good infrastructure. We've re- got a really good uh, ability to to gather information and to and to turn that into something useful and so it would be nice to see another gener- learning about another generation as well um, that's that's an ambition rather than a plan and but for the people that we have they've they've shown us tremendous commitment absolutely tremendous commitment and we want to maintain that commitment to them and keep going with the study and keep uh, delivering useful information from it and when you've gathered all the information you take it back to the government for for them to work on and find out what's best for we no we work on it no, <laughs> right okay. we work on it and we and we deliver our findings to them and then they contemplate what that might mean in terms of their in terms of their policy mm-hmm. we also produce a lot of uh, information that goes out into the scientific literature as well so it it actually changes the way people think about things so whether that's about retirement or depression or about medication use it's quite a broad range of, of topics that we deal with we're trying to influence the scientific community as well as policymakers. Plus, also we feed a lot of our findings back into the, um, the to the public through newspapers and magazines and and so forth. Professor Biles, Meredith, thank you very much for coming in. It's been great. Of course, we wish you success and an ongoing success with your study. And thank you for being here with me today. My guests today have been Professor Julie Biles, Director for the Research Centre for Gender, Health and Ageing, and PhD student Meredith Taverner. As this is my last programme for 2007, I would like on behalf of all the team to wish all of you all the season's greetings, and we'll be back again with you in 2008. <laughs>